not just Jews, but Gentiles also. And we also see that God is completely in control of all things and works out everything for good. You know, that's a promise that we're pretty familiar with, right? From Romans 8.28. But if we're honest, we know that we often question that promise when we encounter times of difficulty. Perhaps you're struck with a, a grave illness and you say, Why, God? How could this possibly be good? Or your relationship with a certain other person turns sour. There's a a broken friendship or a a great strain in the family. And you ask yourself, why? How could this possibly be good? Maybe it's some other set of overwhelming circumstances that suddenly come upon you and you say, God, don't you know that I can't handle this? How could this possibly be good? Frequently, when we encounter big trials, we are tempted to just totally resign ourselves. We basically give up on being joyful, being an encouragement to others, or even being a witness for Christ in the world. And essentially, we we say to ourselves, we won't say these words, but in our attitudes and actions, we say that I'm going to go back to being a Christian when this is all over, because this is just too much. But the fact is, and I know you know this, the fact is that through our difficulties, God is both aware and he's actually providing for us opportunity to rejoice in him and to serve him, but in a different way, perhaps even a greater way. To say that another way, our trials, our difficulties, are the problems that we experience in life, they are sent to us by God, not to prevent us from glorifying him, but precisely so that we might glorify him through those difficulties. Now, when they happen, yes, it's true, we might not be able to do everything that we used to do for the Lord, but God provides us new ways to glorify him and to shine the light of Jesus to the world. We're going to see that truth illustrated in our lesson today as we look at Paul's journey to Rome. Our agenda is pretty simple, just two main things we want to accomplish today. We're going to overview what happened to Paul, what was the journey that brought him to Rome, and then we're going to zero in on just one aspect of that journey, Paul's very interesting ordeal at sea as he tries to travel to Rome. Let's pray before we go on. My Lord and God, we come to you and ask that you would continue to build up your church today. Oh God, help me to be able to explain this word well. And God, I pray that you would move the move and work in the hearts of those who are listening. So this wouldn't be mere information they take in, but something that changes them. Oh Holy Spirit, be pleased to convict, encourage, rebuke empower so that we might be your witnesses and we might glorify you in every situation and we would take advantage of the great opportunities by faith that come through trials in jesus name amen please open your bibles to acts chapter 21 and we're going to begin to overview paul's journey to rome recall that last time last time we left off with paul He was just finishing up his third missionary journey and had ended up in Jerusalem. He was, just a couple of reminders, he was called by the Spirit of Christ to go there and to be a testimony, despite prophecies foretelling that he was going to suffer. He brought an offering from the Macedonian and Greek churches to Jerusalem, and when he arrived, he immediately began to enjoy fellowship with the other believers there. But then... Something terrible happened. Paul was put in prison. And before that, he was seized by a Jewish mob and almost killed. Chapter 21, verses 18 to 40, Paul had gone to the temple as part of helping some other Jewish believers to fulfill a vow. And there were some hostile Jews from Asia. Remember Asia, we're talking about that western province of Anatolia. 
where Paul had just been on his third missionary journey, especially in Ephesus. Some hostile Jews from Asia saw Paul in the temple, and they supposed that Paul had brought some of his Gentile converts into the temple and had therefore defiled the holy space. They called out to the crowd. The crowd seized Paul, and they tried to kill him by beating him to death. And they started their work. Paul endured a beating, but then was rescued by a Roman commander who put Paul in chains and tried to figure out what was the cause of this great riot and disorder in Jerusalem. Paul was able to persuade the commander, however, to let him address the people. And we hear about Paul's defense or speech before the people in chapter 22. Paul gives a defense in which he proves that the charges uh, against him by the Asian Jews are false. But he also gives testimony about Christ and about why he preaches Christ, even to the Gentiles. When in his speech, he mentions that God had called him to go to the Gentiles because the Jews were going to reject God's message. Well, the Jews started to reject Paul's message and they would not listen to him further and they called out for his death. What ensues from chapters 23 to 26, we see that Paul remains imprisoned, but he undergoes a series of trials. First, there's a sham trial before the Sanhedrin in chapter 23. Remember the Sanhedrin, that's that council of elders and religious leaders that is basically the governing body of Israel outside of Rome. His first trial is before them, but it, it's, it's not going to be a fair trial. He's able to escape that trial, but then afterwards, a plot forms against Paul to kill him, to ambush and kill him. But wouldn't you know it, Paul finds out about this plot. He informs the commander, and the commander sends Paul away from Jerusalem to Caesarea by the coast into the capital city of the province under the Roman jurisdiction. In Caesarea, Paul experiences his second trial under the Roman governor Felix. This trial, however, is inconclusive. Felix is not willing to pronounce him guilty or not guilty, and Paul remains in prison for two years. Two years in prison. Now, Paul had been in prison before, but it was not for a long period of time. But now, two years in Caesarea. The third trial for Paul begins in chapter 25, when the governor switches over to a new man named Festus. He has another trial before this man, but like with Felix, it's inconclusive. Festus wants to have Paul tried again in Jerusalem, and seeing that this is going nowhere and that the Jews are likely going to find a, another way to ambush Paul, Paul invoked his right as a Roman citizen to have his case tried by the emperor, Caesar himself, in Rome. At this time, it would be Emperor Nero, but before he went really crazy. Now, he invokes this right. And Festus affirms this right, and he says, all right, I'm going to send you to Caesar in Rome. But before he goes, Paul has one more trial, his fourth trial, before another Roman dignitary, King Agrippa. Now, this is another one of the descendants of Herod the Great. This is a Herod Agrippa. He's a client king of Rome. He rules part of Palestine. The trial before Agrippa happens in chapter 26. And at the end of this trial, Agrippa agrees with Festus that Paul is actually innocent. But Paul had already appealed to Caesar, and so they couldn't release him. They had to send him on to Rome. Bummer, right? I mean, you just missed it, Paul. And God, why did you let that happen? In chapter 27, we see Paul's trip to Rome, or at least an attempted trip to Rome. His journey by sea turns out to be quite harrowing. It's pretty much a disaster. But God preserved Paul's life through it. And Paul ends up moving from Caesarea. So if you look on the map over here in Palestine, Paul ends up moving from Caesarea past the Turkey coast, past Crete, and all the way to the island of Malta, which is an island right below Sicily. In chapter 28, Paul resumes his journey and he finally reaches Rome. Once he gets there and he's waiting for his trial, Paul's able to meet with some of the Jews of the city and preach the gospel of Christ to them. Now, the book ends not with Paul's final trial. It doesn't take place. The book ends with Paul awaiting his trial before Caesar in a kind of house arrest in Rome.
So in total, this last journey, sometimes people call it Paul's fourth missionary journey, but it's not really a missionary journey. It's kind of different. So we'll just call it Paul's journey to Rome. In total, about three years went by from Paul's being seized and imprisoned in Jerusalem to Paul's arrival in Rome. And then the end of the book of Acts tells us that Paul stayed in Rome for another two years. So if Paul's imprisonment began uh, around AD 57, that means he would not be released because he's released soon after this book ends. It, he, he has his trial and is released. He won't be released until about AD 62. So five years. Five years of imprisonment. Now this is sure a pretty different and difficult turn of circumstances in Paul's life. He's never experienced something like this before. Why? What did he ever do to deserve this? Wasn't he a faithful witness to God? How were these things a manifestation of God working out all things together for good for Paul? Well, we should note a few aspects of the narrative as we overview it. I'm going to go to another slide here. Just three general observations I want to make about Paul's journey to Rome. First, and you might be thinking this, this is just, there's a specific promise that undergirds the whole narrative. You remember, I made reference to this verse, but look in your Bibles to Acts 23, verse 11. Because we see a promise that's given to Paul soon after he's first seized in Jerusalem. Jesus himself comes to speak to Paul. Notice what it says in Acts 23, verse 11. It says, But on the night immediately following, the Lord stood at his side and said, Take courage, for as you have solemnly witnessed to my cause at Jerusalem, so you must witness at Rome also. So Christ actually told Paul, while he was still in prison in Jerusalem, that God would bring Paul to Rome. And why? So that Paul might be a witness of Christ in Rome as well. And you may remember, this is actually Paul's desire. Even on his third missionary journey when he was still in Ephesus, Acts chapter 19, verse 21, remember we heard this. Now after these things were finished, Paul purposed in the spirit to go to Jerusalem after he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia, saying, after I've been there, I must also see Rome. That was Paul's desire. He wanted to go to Jerusalem and then Rome. And Jesus himself affirmed that desire as God's will. He said, you solemnly testified here in Jerusalem. Now I'm going to bring you to Rome. So that promise is undergirding this whole journey from Paul while he's imprisoned to get to Rome. Second thing to remember is that throughout this whole ordeal, Paul is given many unique opportunities to witness Christ. For instance, right when he is seized in Jerusalem, he suddenly has an opportunity to address an entire crowd of his brethren, of his, of his fellow Jews in Jerusalem and speak to them about Christ. Also, when he has his various trials, Paul is able to again testify about Christ and what God has done for Paul. Acts 23 to 26, each one of these trials is an opportunity for Paul. Now, you, you think, well, how would he have opportunities to preach if he's a prisoner? But actually, that's exactly why he had that opportunity to preach. And Paul realized this, and he tried to make the most of it. Turn over to Acts 26, verses 29 to, or Acts 26, verses 24 to 29. Here's what Paul says when he's before Festus and Agrippa in his fourth trial. Paul has just basically come to the end of his speech. And then verse 24, we hear Festus's reaction. It says, while Paul was saying this in his defense, Festus said in a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you mad. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I utter words of sober truth. For the king, that's King Agrippa, knows about these matters, and I speak to him also with confidence, since I am persuaded that none of these things escape his notice. But this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you do. Agrippa replied to Paul, In a short time you will persuade me to become a Christian. And Paul said, I would wish to God that whether in a short or a long time, not only you, 
but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. Now that's a very telling statement from Paul. Paul saw each one of his defenses as an opportunity to share the good news of Christ, not only with these great Roman dignitaries, but to everyone who was listening, so that any and all of them might become saved by faith. Indeed, through his imprisonment, Paul was becoming a witness before kings and governors for the Lord's sake. And by the way, where have we heard nearly those same words before? Someone being a witness before kings and governors for the Lord's sake. Where have we heard that before? Oh, that's true. I think there is um, there are some statements about uh, along those lines when Paul is saved and God reveals that he's going to be a chosen instrument. But I'm thinking back even even earlier. Where else have we heard this idea of being a witness before kings and governors for Christ's sake? Yeah, Roy. That's right. When Jesus was instructing his original 12 disciples, he was saying, look, you're going to be seized, you're going to be imprisoned, and you're going to be brought before kings and governors for my sake as a testimony to, them, to the, a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. And that's exactly what we see being fulfilled in Paul's life. But again, unless Paul was imprisoned, he wouldn't have had these opportunities. He had to be seized. He had to be put in prison for these things to come about. Now, so Paul had many great opportunities while being imprisoned in Caesarea, but he also gained more opportunities, more unique opportunities, once he arrived in Rome. As I mentioned, when Paul arrives in Rome in chapter 28, he's soon able to preach to the Jews there. They gather to where Paul is. And then notice the last two verses of the book of Acts. Acts chapter 28, verses 30 and 31. A kind of surprising ending to this book. It says, Acts 28, verses 30 to 31, And he, that's Paul, stayed two full years in his own rented quarters and was welcoming all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with all openness unhindered. So despite being a prisoner, despite being under house arrest in Rome, Paul continues to preach the kingdom. And notice those words, all openness unhindered. That's not what you expect from somebody who's imprisoned, but that's exactly the case. Paul's imprisonment did not prevent Paul from preaching Christ. It gave him new opportunities to do so that he did not have before. In fact, it's not just that Paul was able to speak the gospel to those who never heard it. We should also note that because of Paul's imprisonment, because of his time waiting in Rome, Paul writes his prison epistles. Those books, Ephesians, Colossians, Philippians, and Philemon. These were not only a great benefit to churches in those days, but they are scripture. And they have instructed and edified believers throughout history and still do today. They are the word that we ourselves study and want to apply into our lives. So far from preventing Paul from glorifying Christ or giving him the ability to minister, Paul's imprisonment actually magnified Paul's ability to serve his Lord. So that's the second thing we should note about Paul's journey to Rome. And one other thing, one other thing to note is that through it all, God protected Paul. God protected and provided for him. Really, when we look at this last journey of Paul in Acts, Paul should have died. And he nearly did die multiple times in chapters 22 to 28. He was almost beat to death in Jerusalem. The Jews plotted to ambush and kill him multiple times. He ends up being caught in a terrible storm at sea. He's almost executed by his jailers. He gets shipwrecked and he's bit by a venomous snake. But God providentially and miraculously protects Paul in order to keep his promise to Paul 
that Paul would be a witness of the Lord Christ in Rome. Actually, Paul's imprisonment in a way was part of that protection because being given a Roman guard constantly, Paul was in some measure protected from the incessant plotting of the Jews, which before this point was a constant problem in Paul's life and ministry. They're always trying to kill him, but now he has some Roman guards. But anyways, from these three observations and from our general look at Paul's journey to Rome, we can already see how an apparent tragedy, an unfortunate turn in circumstances, a senseless series of trials was actually being carefully fashioned by God for God's own glory and Paul's personal good. But now let's see this truth played out more specifically. Turn back to Acts chapter 27, and we're going to examine Paul's voyage to Rome itself as the main part of our Sunday school lesson today. We're going to follow Paul's journey from Caesarea in Palestine to Rome or near Rome. We're going to go paragraph by paragraph through the text. We're going to make observations after each paragraph, and we'll work our way through the entire chapter. This is a somewhat famous section of scripture. It's a very gripping story. Let's pay close attention. Acts 27 verse 1, We'll start with just verses 1 to 8. So this is after Paul's appeal to Caesar. He's spoken before Agrippa and Festus, and they're about to send him off to Rome. Verse 1. When it was decided that we would sail for Italy, they proceeded to deliver Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. And embarking in an Adramidian ship, which is about to sail to the regions along the coast of Asia, we put out to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, Macedonian of Thessalonica. And the next day we put in at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul with consideration and allowed him to go to his friends and receive care. From there we put out to sea and sailed under the shelter of Cyprus because the winds were contrary. When we had sailed through the sea, uh, sea along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we landed at Myra in Lycia. There the centurion found an Alexandrian ship sailing for Italy, and he put us aboard it. When we had sailed slowly for a good many days, and with difficulty had arrived off Cnidus, since the wind did not permit us to go farther, we sailed under the shelter of Crete off Salmon, and with difficulty sailing past it we came to a place called Fair Havens, near which was the city of Lycia. Okay, let's note a few things about these verses. First, notice the we, personal pronoun we in the text. What does that indicate? Who's there with Paul? Luke, Luke, our author. He's back with Paul. Remember, uh, Luke joined up with Paul on his um, second missionary journey. He detaches, but then links up with Paul again near the end of Paul's third missionary journey as Paul's passing through Philippi. He appears to accompany Paul to Jerusalem. He's there with Paul as Paul is arrested and imprisoned and goes through his various trials. Luke has been with Paul, and now he travels with Paul on his way to Rome. Note something else. Notice the favor that's granted to the prisoner Paul by the centurion Julius. He's able, Paul is able to visit his Christian friends and receive care. Notice also that they're put on an Alexandrian ship. That's not an idle detail. That tells us something. Alexandria and Egypt as a whole was famous for one main export, wheat. Egypt was the breadbasket of the Roman Empire. Its grain was very important for feeding the hungry masses in Rome. There was a grain fleet that was just committed to transporting grain from Egypt to Rome through the port of Alexandria. One of those ships happens to be in the port where Paul and the others are docked. And so the centurion puts the group on this cargo ship, this merchant ship headed for Italy. Notice though, as they travel, you can already see that there's some difficult weather. Verse four, it says the winds were contrary. Verse seven, with difficulty they arrived off Cnidus. And there's another reference to the wind in that verse. And verse eight, with difficulty we sailed past this certain place. It's a little ominous, right? All these details about difficult weather. And that explains their travel route. The route they take is basically they hug the southern coast of Asia Minor, 
until they come near the end of that peninsula and they travel down towards the island of Crete and pass by the southern side of it until they get near the middle of the island to a port called Fair Havens. All right, this is where we arrive at the end of verse 8. Let's see what happens next. Verses 9 to 13. When considerable time had passed, and the voyage was now dangerous, since even the fast was already over, Paul began to admonish them and said to them, Men, I perceive that the voyage will certainly be with damage and great loss, not only of the cargo and, of, and the ship, but also of our lives. But the centurion was more persuaded by the pilot and the captain of the ship than by what was being said by Paul. Because the harbor was not suitable for wintering, the majority reached a decision to put out to sea from there, if somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, facing southwest and northwest, and spend the winter there. When a moderate south wind came up, supposing that they had attained their purpose, they weighed anchor and began sailing along Crete, close inshore. Okay, now we see a, a timing detail that explains a little bit of the difficult weather we've seen. Notice it says in verse 9 that the fast was already over. That's a reference to the Day of Atonement, which means we're around October of the year at this point. That also tells us that sailing is becoming more and more dangerous. At this time in the ancient world, it was a, it was a big risk to go out sailing in the months of September and October. And certainly it was unthinkable to go sailing in the winter. And why is that? Well, remember what kind of ships we're dealing with. These are wooden, wind-driven wind ships. And they can't handle some of the heavy weather at sea that modern ships can. As I said, these difficult periods of weather in October and following, most sailors would not even attempt, would not even attempt to go out on this weather. They instead, would just hang out on the harbor and that certain city where they were until the winter was over and just resume the voyage in the spring. We're already seeing some of that contrary weather, and then there's a decision about whether they should keep going. Now, the group does decide to keep going. And why is that? I'm sorry, say that a little bit more loudly. Okay, so that may be, um, may be desired to move a little bit more quickly so they can get their cargo there. Though it's interesting, they're not really trying to make it to Rome. That's, that's out of the question. They just want to get a little bit further along. They want to get to another harbor in Crete, one that's a little bit more suitable to winter in. They figure that Fairhavens, this is not a good enough harbor for us to spend the next couple of months. We need to go to this better harbor in Phoenix, which is a little bit further west on the Isle of Crete. Just want to go a little bit farther before they call it quits for the year. Notice Paul's warning, verse 10. He says, if we keep sailing, there's going to be loss, both of property and life. I'm pretty sure, look at the circumstances. But the centurion, the centurion who's in charge, does not listen to Paul. So they do leave Fair Havens when they see this mild wind appear, this moderate wind. Oh, great. This will get us just a little bit further along, and we'll hug the coast just in case. Well, things turn out a little, little different than people expect. Verses 14 to 20, next. Verse 14. But before very long, there rushed down from the land a violent wind called Euroquillo. And when the ship was caught in it and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and let ourselves be driven along. Running under the shelter of a small island called Clauda, we were scarcely able to get the ship's boat under control. After they had hoisted it up, they used supporting cables and undergirding the ship, and fearing that they might run aground on the shallows of Syrtis, they let down the sea anchor, and in this way let themselves be driven along. The next day, as we were being violently storm-tossed, they began to jettison the cargo, and on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. Since neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small storm was assailing us, from then on, all hope of our being saved was gradually abandoned. Wow, what a, what a dramatic turn. This mild south wind turned out to be anything but. It's a Euroquilla. That is a northeaster, a nor'easter. Now, we're familiar with that term, right? New Jerseyans, we're familiar with that term. 
because of the heavy and violent storms that come down to that state from the northeast. It's the same idea for this for this group in the Mediterranean. Euroquilla was a violent storm, and they've sailed right into it. But by the way, who controls the wind? Of course, our God does. So who sent it? He did. Why? Well, we'll have to keep reading. So the group, the ship, they've been caught in the storm. And they have no choice but to let themselves be driven by the wind and secure the ship as best they can. They do their best, but notice the toll the storm takes on the passengers. The violent wind and the waves, they don't stop. The clouds and darkness mean that no sun or stars appear for many days. And the effect is everyone starts giving up hope. It's no use, they think to themselves, we're all going to die. I mean, imagine being there yourself on this boat, day after day in the dark, getting continually knocked around by the pounding storm. Nothing is changing. Nothing is getting better. It's hopeless. But let's keep reading. Verse 21 to 26. When they had gone a long time without food, then Paul stood up in their midst and said, Men, you want to have followed my advice and not to have set sail from Crete and incurred this damage and loss. Yet now I urge you to keep up your courage, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night, an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve stood before me, saying, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who are sailing with you. Therefore, keep up your courage, men, for I believe, I believe, God, that it will turn out exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on a certain island. Let's observe a few things here. Notice that the passengers have pretty much stopped eating. It's not immediately clear why. It could be due to seasickness, due to the extreme waves. The boat is being tossed so much that people don't feel like eating. It could be that it's just too difficult to prepare. There are too many things to worry about that they don't even have time to make food. Or they just, their lack of hope is preventing them from eating. If you've ever been severely depressed, it often leads to just a desire not to eat. That's actually one of the reasons why people fast in the scriptures. So they're not eating. But notice Paul stands up in their midst and he has this unexpected message. He just says, you should have listened. But then, take courage, he says. No one will die. How do you know that, Paul? Well, the God to whom I belong and to whom I serve and whom I serve sent an angel to me. Now, that's a really interesting description, right? That's a very personal identification of Paul with God. The God to whom I belong. And it says, this God sent an angel and told me that I must stand before Caesar, which, of course, is precisely what Jesus had promised Paul in Acts chapter 23. And then this angel also said that God has granted me everyone sailing with me. That's another interesting phrase, right? Granted you in verse 24 in reference to Paul. God granted them or God granted him the lives of the other people on board. We'll come back to the significance of that statement. And Paul reassures everyone. I believe that my God will make it turn out exactly as he said. So let's take courage. But we must run aground on a certain island. We're going to have to run this ship aground. Let's see what happens next. Verses 27 to 32. But when the 14th night came, as we were being driven about in the Adriatic Sea, that's reference to the central Mediterranean in, in ancient times, about midnight, the sailors began to surmise that they were approaching some land. They took soundings and found it to be 20 fathoms. And a little further on, they took another sounding and found it to be 15 fathoms. Fearing that we might run aground somewhere on the rocks, they cast four anchors from the stern and wished for daybreak. But as the sailors were trying to escape from the ship and had let down the ship's boat into the sea on the pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and to the soldiers, Unless these men remain in the ship, 
You yourselves cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it fall away. Interesting. Now we see that they've been two weeks in the storm by this point. But they now realize that they're approaching land. They try to slow down the ship, however, because it's still night. And it will be very difficult to successfully run the ship aground when you hardly can see anything. But then we hear about something strange. Some sailors attempt to take the ship's boat, the little skiff, and escape to row to land. But Paul warns the centurion and soldiers, unless these sailors stay, you soldiers won't be saved. Now they heed this warning, and they cut the boat away themselves, and everyone stays on board. Now why this strange requirement? Again, we'll come back to it. We're just making observations right now. Let's keep going. Verses 33 to 38. Until the day was about to dawn, Paul was encouraging them all to take some food, saying, Today is the 14th day that you have been constantly watching and going without eating, having taken nothing. Therefore, I encourage you to take some food, for this is for your preservation, for not a hair from the head of any of you will perish. Having said this, he took bread and gave thanks to God in the presence of all, and he broke it and began to eat. All of them were encouraged, and they themselves also took food. All of us in the ship were 276 persons. When they had eaten enough, they began to lighten the ship by throwing out the wheat into the sea. Ah, some more details emerge. You realize there are a lot of people on board this ship, 276 people. This would have included sailors, soldiers, prisoners, other passengers, and Paul's companions, including Luke. And Paul encourages them. He tells them, you guys need to eat. You need to gain some sustenance. You're going to need this food for your preservation. And he promises them again that none of them will perish. It uses that Hebraism, not a hair of your head will perish, which is a, a great guarantee of protection. And he himself, Paul himself, thanks God, and he eats before them. And the rest, when seeing this and hearing this, they do take courage, and they eat. Notice, though, they throw out the rest of the Egyptian wheat as they prepare to run aground that day. This is it. No, more, no point hanging on to this food. It's time to run this ship aground. Let's see what happens as we approach the end of the chapter and the climax of this narrative. Verses 39 to 44. When day came, they could not recognize the land, but they did observe a bay with a beach, and they resolved to dry the ship onto it if they could. And casting off the anchors, they left them in the sea, but at the same time, they were loosening the ropes of the rudders and hoisting the foresail to the wind. They were heading for the beach. But striking a reef where two seas met, they ran the vessel aground, and the prow, that is the front of the ship, stuck fast and remained immovable. But the stern, that's the back of the ship, began to be broken up by the force of the waves. The soldiers' plan was to kill the prisoners so that none of them would swim away and escape. But the centurion, wanting to bring Paul safely through, kept them from their intention and commanded that those who could swim should jump overboard first and get to land, and the rest should follow, some on planks and others on various things from the ship. And so it happened that they were all brought safely to land. Let's observe this last bit of text. Note that they try to take the ship onto the bay's beach, but they cannot. The front of the ship gets stuck in a reef or a sandbar some distance away from the shore. And meanwhile, the back of the ship is being broken apart by the pounding waves. So it's time to abandon ship. But there's a problem. What about the prisoners? Notice the soldiers want to kill the prisoners so that none of them could escape. Why would preventing the escape of the prisoners be so important to the soldiers? That's right. Remember, we've already seen this concept in the scriptures that Roman soldiers, they had a high degree of responsibility. They would be punished if they lost a prisoner, and oftentimes that punishment was death. We even see that happen to some guards um, in another point in the book of Acts. So it's to their advantage to just kill the prisoners. But would that be just or unjust? 
Clearly, that would be unjust. You don't just kill prisoners for no reason. That would be evil. Yet they would want to do it for their own self-interest. But their plan is not carried out because the centurion, we're told, wants to save Paul's life. So he prevented any of the prisoners from being killed. He instead commands that everyone swim to shore or grab something that floats and do their best to drift to shore. And what was the outcome? Verse 44, <clears throat> they were all brought safely to land. All 276 people were saved. Notice though the verb. It says they were brought. And that's a passive construction. The one doing the bringing is not specified. So who did it? Or what did it? Was it the water? Was it the people themselves? Or was it God? Certainly keeping in mind God's sovereignty, we know that it really was God. So coming to the end of this passage, did God keep his promise to preserve Paul and even to spare the lives of the 276 people on board? He did. The Lord protected them all. And you want to know something crazy. This is just a side note. But this actually is not the first time that Paul has been shipwrecked. Because we read in 2 Corinthians 11.25, 2 Corinthians 11.25, Paul's recounting all the sufferings he's experienced for Christ. And he says there, three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have spent in the deep. Now, if you remember what I said last time, on which journey did, write, did Paul write 2 Corinthians? It was on his third missionary journey, before this shipwreck has even taken place. So before what we see in Acts 27, Paul has already been shipwrecked three times. This might be his fourth. And regardless, each time, God preserved Paul, since God had an important mission for Paul to fulfill. Not only to get to Rome, but to be a witness in various places in the world. God was going to make these things happen before God took Paul to be home with him in heaven. Now, chapter 28, verses 1 to 10, goes on to mention where the people arrived and what happened next. We won't read it, but I'll just summarize it real quick. They arrived on the island of Malta, like I said, an island below Sicily. God gave the beleaguered passengers, those that had escaped from the ship, aid from the local people. And Paul actually did many miracles on the island. Undoubtedly, though it's not mentioned explicitly, also testifying about Christ to the people of Malta. He was there for three months, basically for the rest of the winter, before they could resume the journey to Rome. By the way, there's still a St. Paul's Bay in Malta today. It's not only a geographical feature, but it is a town on the island of Malta. And if you look on Google Maps at St. Paul's Bay, you can also see in the water, in the water is something called St. Paul's Shoal. So that's probably, likely, the very spot where Paul's ship crashed into the reef and they all were able to jump into the water and escape. So having made these observations, let's now consider some interpretation questions. All right, first, why did God say he granted Paul the lives of all the passengers. This has got to indicate something. What does it tells us? What does this tell us about Paul's attitude? Yeah, Dwayne. Can you say that more loudly? Yeah, this shows that Paul wanted these people to be saved and very likely was praying for them. And so God grants Paul's request. For your sake, Paul, I will save these people. So certainly we see that Paul cared about his fellow passengers. Another question. Why did Paul tell the soldiers that they had to keep the sailors on the ship if the soldiers wanted to live? Kind of a strange requirement, right? We don't know the exact answer. There are some ideas. Perhaps if the sailors left the boat, the sailors would die. They would be lost in the storm. And God said, I don't want that to happen. So if you let them go, I'm going to hold you accountable. You're not going to be saved. It may also be that these sailors, once they left the ship, they would leave the other passengers vulnerable. There wouldn't be enough sailors to successfully guide the ship to shore. 
and other passengers might be lost. Either way, God was determined to save them all, and so Paul had to give this important warning. But there's a kind of tricky follow-up question to this. If God already promised to save everyone's lives, why worry about whether if any the sailors leave the boat? We're seeing an intersection between two concepts we often see in the Bible. God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. Paul and the soldiers still had a responsibility despite God's promise. We could ask this question, could the soldiers have disobeyed Paul's warning and let the sailors go? Theoretically, yes, they could have done that. They could have used their free wills to disobey. But realistically, no, the soldiers couldn't have disobeyed because God had already ordained that everyone would be saved through a specific set of circumstances. Nevertheless, Paul's warning to the soldiers was an important means through which God used, or through, through which God caused the soldiers to keep everyone on board and accomplish God's ultimate will, the salvation, the rescue of all these persons. So God is sovereign, yet man is still responsible. Or we could even say it this way. The fact that God is sovereign should motivate and encourage man to be responsible. Of course, this is not a new concept. We've been saying, through this, saying this throughout the course, especially when it comes to evangelism, right? Unless we evangelize, people won't get saved. Romans 10, 17. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of Christ. If we don't talk, if we don't give people the gospel, they won't be saved. But God has already elected all his own unto salvation. So is it possible for God's people then to not evangelize? Could that happen? Theoretically, yes. Realistically, no. There will never be a situation in which God's people will be so disobedient and so unable to give the gospel that it will not go out. God's means, which he has chosen, which is church, preaching the gospel, they will not fail because God will move his people to obedience. But what's our responsibility as individual members of the church? It is to preach the gospel. Again, though God is sovereign, we have a responsibility. And we, because of God's sovereign promises, we are encouraged and motivated to fulfill our responsibility. Now, Paul's voyage to Rome was a pretty traumatic affair. Yet it was carefully arranged by God. Think about it. How did God glorify himself and do good to Paul and others through this voyage? What's one way? Right, we see God keeps his promise to protect Paul and to protect the people. That is, a, that is a great sign of God's compassion. That is a great sign of God's faithfulness. That is a great sign of God's care. God was revealing himself through this ordeal. What else? Dwayne. Right. Oh, that's a good point, Dwayne. So uh, Dwayne mentioned that they weren't listening to Paul in the beginning, but they certainly were listening to Paul at the end. And that would be important for what Paul had to say about God and to say about Christ. They were certainly listening to him when he said, my God will protect us all, the God to whom I belong, the God whom I serve. They were encountering this God through Paul. And certainly Paul was giving testimony of Christ on the boat and on the shore once he reached Malta. He was a testimony to the passengers who had escaped, and to the people of Malta. 
This was a great kindness from God to allow his word to go forth through Paul, even through these circumstances, not even through, but specifically through these circumstances. Roy, you were going to say something. Yeah, that's a great point, Roy. We can see more of the fact that the people were listening to Paul, taking the message of Paul, of the gospel of God seriously, because we can see how the centurion reacts. The other soldiers want to kill the prisoners, but he specifically wants to protect Paul. I'm sure it's not simply because Paul was such a nice guy, but because he... He believed what Paul was saying. Yeah, so we can see already various aspects of good and God's glory coming about through this voyage, this very difficult voyage. As we said, God God shows his ability to care, his ability to protect, his ability to deliver, not just to Paul and the other believers, but to those that don't belong to God. God shows his faithfulness to his promises. God showed his great power. And being able to deliver them, to deliver them from even a violent, terrible storm. God showed the people the great frailty of their lives and their need for an eternal deliverance. God gave Paul opportunity to witness Christ to others on board and to the people of Malta. Opportunities he would not have had except for this storm and this voyage. And God arranged all of this to be observed and recorded by Luke, Paul's companion, so that Believers across time, men across time might hear and see who God is and that they might believe and be saved. So this was actually a great, great good that God was working, even though it was difficult for those experiencing it. We can consider the whole trip to Rome from Acts 21 to 28, and we see that God is showing again just what kind of God he is. He is sovereign and powerful. He is kind and loving. His sovereignty over his people is always good. He intimately knows about and cares about his own. He's determined to put his glory on display, and he is faithful to his promises. Even when by sight or by man's analysis of his circumstances, There is no reason to hope. There's no reason to believe based on what I see. God shows my word is true. You can believe it even when things look the opposite. So we can see that there's definitely some application for us in this, isn't there? When it comes to God's sovereignty and viewing our difficult circumstances. We can trust the Lord. But two questions I want to leave you with as we come to the end here. Why is it that when we encounter life's difficulties, when we go through the storms in life, we don't believe in the Lord? We lack faith. We despair, become depressed. We lose hope. Why? Why do you think? Yeah, we do focus on the storm instead of God. And I think along with that, we could say that there seems to be a more powerful, more persuasive word than the very word of God. It is the word that our feelings tell us. Now, feelings themselves are not bad. But feelings are, they are very dependent on what you believe. The flesh wants to use our feelings in such a way as to disbelieve God. And so when you find yourself in a difficult circumstance, you very easily can find your feelings saying, oh, this is is terrible. God has abandoned you. 
there is no hope in this situation. But what we need to do is actually kind of recapture our feelings, reinform our feelings. We need to put off that unbelief, that fleshly unbelief and the thinking that goes along with that, and put on belief in God's word. Let that truth inform our feelings. We say, you know what? If I look at my circumstances, there is no hope. But is God's word true or not? We know that it is true. And so we, we uh, base our thinking, we, we consider our feelings, and we act based on God's truth. Now, I've been listening to a number of uh, uh, counseling-related uh, resources as part of one of my classes at seminary. And in one of them, one of the counselors said, when he was instructing another person, he said, we need to become principle-oriented people rather than feeling-oriented people. And what he means by that is that we need to base our thinking, our beliefs, on what the Word says and not our experiences and the feelings that just come up based on our flesh. Because when we're driven by our feelings, that's when we get into lots of trouble. That's when we lose hope. And that's when we're no longer an effective witness for the Lord. When we act based on God's word, not only are we effective in displaying the Lord's light, but we don't lose the joy of the Lord. So I do think that's part of it. That's part of why we often fail, but we also see part of the solution. We need to put off not just the actions, but even the very thinking and beliefs that go against God's word and base everything we think and do on God's word. One related, uh, hang on to that thought. Hang on to that thought. One related question. Just want to make sure we can get to this before we end here. Also want you to consider your own life difficulties. Do you see them as important opportunities for you to uniquely glorify Christ. Consider Paul and his voyage to Rome. It's true that trials will change our ability to minister, but that doesn't mean that our ministry ends. Trials themselves are key avenues of ministry, often magnifying our ability to glorify the Lord. Think of all the opportunities Paul would have missed if he had not been imprisoned and not even shipwrecked on his way to Rome. So consider your own trials and ask yourself, how can I glorify God through my trial and use it as my own special opportunity from God? Because that's what God's meant for us to do. God indeed uses all our circumstances for our good and his glory. Okay, there was a question or comment I want to get back to. Hmm. Mm. Yeah, that's a good point, um, Paul. We, along with remembering the scriptures, we should remember how the scriptures have proven true in our lives in the past, that God has delivered us. And there are always going to be some risk in that. Your flesh is going to be like, oh, that's risky. I don't know if we want to do that. But you say, but I can believe the Lord. I will take on this risk because he has proven faithful in the past, and his word is true. Uh, I think there was another hand. Mm. Yeah, uh, often we do think we along with just doubting the word of God, we feel like God doesn't care. God's not able. He's not, he's not going to do anything. And so we have to do it all ourselves. It is true that God has given us responsibilities, but he's also said, you do what you can do, but then leave it to me because I'm the one who's ultimately responsible for you. And that's what we've seen before in Matthew chapter six. It says, don't worry about your life. I know your needs. I'll take care of you. You seek first my kingdom and my righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Steve, you had something real quick? (laughs) 
Yeah. Yeah, God was not only gracious to Paul, but God was gracious to Luke, as he pointed out, and gracious to us because we would never have heard about all these good things that God had done if Luke had perished in this storm. So God was indeed glorifying himself and doing great good to his people and not just those who were there. All right, that's it for this week. If you have other questions or comments, please email me. Next week, we move on from Acts and we begin sampling Paul's letters in the New Testament. Let's pray. Our Lord God, this is a great word, another encouraging example of your faithfulness, your sovereignty. So God, I pray that we would learn appropriately from this, that we consider your sovereign care over our lives and also how you are using difficulties in so many good ways. Yes, to refine us, but also God to give us more and different opportunities to glorify you. So God, I pray that each one would be examining in their lives today how they can take advantage of those opportunities. As difficult as they might be, recognize that they are good and from you and say, how can I glorify my Lord Christ through this? In Jesus' name, amen. All right, thank you all. I will see you next week.